All right, here we go. Just waiting for our guest today, John Stryker Meyer. The legend. The man, myth, the legend. Um, this is a huge, huge opportunity for us. And if you are a student of history, especially special forces history, you have definitely heard of Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. And you probably already heard about John Strykermeyer. A lot of people don't know about the secret war. Like, it's just not. Yeah. Like, everyone knows about the Vietnam War. Maybe people know that we were conducting operations um, outside of Vietnam, uh, particularly uh, to the west of, of Vietnam. Um, but a lot of people don't know the, the details and what the mission actually was. Exactly. This will be super interesting and educational, uh, to, uh, our, our listeners for sure. Yeah. And look who's here right now. The man, the myth, the legend, John, how are you today? Uh, other than being technologically slow, we're doing fine, sir. That's all of us. Uh, I I wasn't yeah. an eighteen Echo. I was an eighteen Bravo, and then a one eighty Alpha. But uh, Ryan knows. Oh, is that right? More. Yep. Yeah. I'm, oh, no I'm a little bit, a little bit more on the tech side, um, <laughs> but still handicapped. So <laughs> well, we're not talking about mental handicap here. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're My we were just talking uh, about the importance of. Uh, understanding where we come from as uh, Green Berets, members of soft community. Uh, as a kid, uh, I grew up watching old TV shows, uh, Tour of Duty. I grew up watching the the old John Wayne Green Beret movie and then diving into things like uh, Roy P. Venevity's story, understanding uh, just how much of a monumental task was dropped on your shoulders, on your guys' shoulders. And and what you guys did is um, nothing short than legendary. And it, remember, the key things are young and dumb. <laughs> right. right. And <laughs> I think some of the some of the things a lot of guys have in common with you is that their first uh, introduction into warfare was uh, an absolutely insane mission that, <laughs> that they, yeah. they weren't even sure that they were prepared for. But damn it, they're going to gonna give it the old college try <laughs> <laughs> amen <laughs> uh for john please uh for 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 those that don't know uh about mac v sog please give us um an introduction oh gladly yeah um during the, the uh, early days of the vietnam war the uh the big question was what is the enemy doing in laos and cambodia which are countries to the west of south vietnam and then, of course, North Vietnam up north. And in the early 60s, under the Kennedy regime uh, administration, um, they, that initial duty was by the uh, CIA. And they had a couple of uh, issues that embarrassed Kennedy. So Kennedy goes, OK, we got to turn this thing over to the military. And at that point, you know, uh, President Kennedy was the one who authorized the wearing of the Green Beret. And he was familiar with our training. He was familiar with what the possibility capabilities were of our men. 
So uh, they turned it over to the military. And, and um, so in June of 1964, that was the beginning of the opening of the Secret War. It was MACV SOG. So it's MACV, which is a Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. And that uh, they put that that tag onto it so that when reporters, Snoopy reporters, would go through the budget line, they would see studies and observations. Oh, that's bullshit. Give me the good stuff. <laughs> and uh, it worked. So that was the beginning of the eight-year secret war. And um, it took a while to get it up and running. But um, by 64, they had teams. They were doing training. And um, missions were being conducted. Initially, they walked across into Laos or Cambodia doing some recon. And then we had the South Vietnamese Air Force that became uh, our transportation. And by the time I arrived, there were six FOBs, Ford Observation Bases, but we called them FOBs. FOB 1 was at I-Corps. That's where I went. FOB 2 was Contum. And FOB3 was uh, Quezon, which um, in the early parts of Tet of 1968, the Marines have been getting bombarded for 77 days at Quezon. There was a full siege by the North Vietnamese, and they were attempting to overrun it, as they had with Dien Bien Phu in 1954 with the French. But they failed there, as in every other offensive that they launched during the Tet of 68. And then we had FOB-4 at Da Nang, FOB-5 at Bami Tuat, FOB-6 was Honok Tao, the furthermost south FOB. It was just northwest of Saigon. So five and six launched missions into Cambodia. One through four, our primary targets were Laos, which was codenamed Prairie Fire. And you know, we had signed or had been a part of an agreement of some sort of treaty that said, we, America, will have no troops assigned to Laos or Cambodia. And the communists did the same thing. And, of course, being communists, they lied like they always do. And by the time I got there in 68, there were 25 to 30,000 stationed in Laos, any worse than 25 to 100,000 in Cambodia. They would come across the border, attack our aid camps, attack our allies, and then go back and licked their wounds in Laos and Cambodia. And um, the rules of engagement were very strict in Cambodia. And then in Laos, we had a um, little bit more flexibility in terms of TAC air, close air support. We had the A-1 Sky Raiders, Air Force fast movers, and of course, gunships from both the Marine Corps, like Scarface, Eagle Claw, a couple others, as well as 101st to 76th from the Army. And um, so 68 was our biggest year. By the time I arrived, and of course, um, when we arrived at FOB1, myself, Johnny McIntyre, and John Hutchins get off the South Vietnamese Air Force, the codenamed King Bees. And uh, a recon team got on. It was Spike Team Alabama, I mean, uh, Idaho, where the 1 0 was Glenn Lane, and the 1 1 was Robert Owen. They disappeared, and they're still listing as missing in action today. So that was my introduction to the Secret War. Spider Parks had been on the team, had been promoted to get his own team. So when Idaho got wiped out, 
Spider was brought back to the team. He was the team leader. Don Walken, who was a sergeant, became the assistant team leader, and I was a radio operator. And then we hired more South Vietnamese, and then we had to train them up, train them up, train up my green ass, and um, took a few months, and then we started running missions. And that went on until till Jan until 1972. And of course, today, just for the just for a contemporary post, there are still 50 Green Berets that are missing in action in Laos from the secret war. There's, and we've documented at least 83 aviators who died, are still missing, missing in action, who died supporting us in the secret war in Laos and Cambodia. And there's 1,584 Americans still missing in action today in Southeast Asia from the Vietnam War. That that is to fathom that interaction right there, just to see that transition. You get off, you see the guys get in. It's like you head nod, never see him again. And that's kind of like you know, hey, uh, when you guys get back, let's have let's have a beer or something, or maybe a coke. Yeah, they don't come back. Yeah, and, and we we intimately know that feeling from our time in Afghanistan. We've had those, hey, I'll take your assault pack. I'll go back. I'll refit it. I'll fill it up with dip, and then I'll bring it back out to you. <laughs> and then later on, just a day or two, you have that sit down. It's okay. Uh, so-and-so is gone. They didn't make it. There's what happened. But one thing that we, we none of us have experienced is we got our guys, we got our brothers out. They may, yeah. they may not have all come home the way we wanted them, but now our there's a lot of our heroes, a lot of brothers are still there, still gone somewhere, and that's that's the part that's like, <clears throat> holy shit! Like that's no matter who you are, that hits you, that brings you back to the understanding of that war. That didn't that didn't come to terms like we saw Afghanistan shut down. Like there was a hasty pullout, yes, but we got our guys out of there. And in this case, we still have missing Green Berets. And that sticks with every Green Beret from from that period on to the guy that graduates the course tomorrow. That's a reality of the profession. That's the reality of our history. You're going to be called on to do the most impossible, the most dangerous missions out there. And there's a, a there is an understanding that you might not come home, but holy shit, like that's that I, I can't tell you how honored it, we feel to have you on the show. Every time we meet a Green Beret from Vietnam, it's an important, impactful meeting because you guys paved the wave for us. You paved the way for us to make it. Uh, to continue serving, to continue growing the regiment, continue building the force so we can continue bringing the fight to the enemy and your stories, your books, and, and that of your brothers is just phenomenal. Uh, it, it's just, we got a little bit of that in our time in Afghanistan, in Iraq, we can look back and say, holy shit, like we're doing it. We have, we have our own little team and our support force, and we're continuing to carry that torch, take the fight to the enemy and it's humbling to know that, man, like <laughs> you guys are up here 
and we got to we got to experience a little bit of that of that brotherhood and i'm just so grateful to a have you guys around to share this knowledge and share the history with us because without you we don't get the true story we don't get the true understanding and the gravity of there's still guys missing right and then and then the other thing is special forces is i mean to my utter embarrassment they are remarkably piss poor at retaining our history. They're so busy working at the tip of the spear with all the different missions. And of course, a little 20 year war can slow you down. But at least now, <laughs> yeah. like the Special Forces Group is really working to get back to uh, emphasis on our history. And there's a Special Forces Museum that's on Bragg, and they have um, a small staff, but at least they're there trying their own small yeah. way. And of course, we got our podcast now. We do a sodcast. Yeah, where I'm interviewing guys from the Secret War, and, um, and I'm trying to get started on my fourth book, but it's been a little slow between moving to Tennessee, having grandchildren, and a <laughs> oh, wife wow. who's very proactive. Um, <laughs> man, oh man! <laughs> yeah. You have five five kids of your own, right, John? Say again. You have five kids of your own. Right. We had five. We lost one two years ago in a car accident. I'm sorry. Our oldest know. boy was killed in a car accident. And uh, so, but yes, we have five. We have three grandchildren that uh, are the absolute delight. You know, they're probably the brightest grandchildren ever born. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so speaking of MIAs over in uh, Vietnam, uh, Laos, Cambodia, uh, there are programs that if you're listening and you're active duty or um or not, uh, you can sign up for programs and organizations that uh, go out and look for Americans that that haven't returned home yet. Uh, John, I don't know if you know any of those organizations off the top of your head, uh, but I do know that I've had several uh, service member teammates of mine that have gone out and and signed up for that. Uh, I don't think they knew what they were getting into. Maybe they thought uh, it was going to be something different, but no, you are in the jungle and you are excavating and looking for remains um, of our, our fallen comrades. Yeah, we, um, my, my knowledge is very limited because um, a just been busy throughout the years, but there's the, the uh, defense department has the, the uh, defense of POW MIA accountability agency and DPAA. And um, there's been other, it's had other names over the years and their mission is the primary mission. They're formed for the missing in Southeast Asia from the Vietnam war. There's another whole side of that today with politics, but I'm familiar with that. And of course you have the national league of POW MIA families, which is, uh, has enjoyed a, an incredible working relationship. And over the 50 plus years, they are known by, and they're familiar with every of every leader in Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam. The trouble is, our government doesn't talk to them enough, and there's all this back and forth. And you have DIA, which has uh, they have agents that are trained in the language, in the field, on the ground, providing active intel to this day, and they've done an outstanding job. Again. DPAA is the agency that's got to go back. And these days, they're also becoming very uh, focused on generating numbers by doing so from World War II and the Korean War, which uh, 
we're all happy about bringing back any remains, but they're doing it by decreasing the emphasis on Vietnam. And I don't care what any talking head from DPA says. In the end, it's the final insult to our MIA families. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Uh, and I think what you do with the Sodcast um, is a great way to document the history. Um, and time is ticking with oh, yeah. the information that we have to be able to more successfully find those people where, you know, where, where did we last hear from them? Um, who, what possible enemy were in the area that, that could have recovered those remains and, and taken them somewhere else. Um, you know, as the more time goes on, the, the more uh, historians or um, participants in this conflict in the secret war are, are fading away. So um, it is more ever important now to get all of that information documented um, to, to even have a shot at finding these lost Americans. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. And here's the last factor. These, the soil in Southeast Asia is the most acidic soil in the world. And that's, it's so acidic that it eats away the bones. And uh, depending on which archeologist or which technician you talk to, there may only be five or 10 more years before the bones are totally destroyed. And imagine looking for a uh, couple of teeth and the jungle over time, the jungle always grows. So if, if there's a person who dies, just say somebody dies, then the jungle will grow over there if nobody touches them or if the animals don't drag them away. And, you know, at some point you're just going to have to say we surrender, but, Right now, the DPA is giving lip service to Vietnam. And the classic example, like eight, nine years ago, the DPA had over more than a dozen analysts. And the analysts were the ones who looked at contemporary reports, checking with old reports. They go to our reunions every year to talk to our vets, getting new details. And, and the men that do that at the field level are outstanding. Don't get me wrong here, but higher up over time, all those analysts, the majority of them have been removed and put in the World War II and Korean War stuff. So today there might be two or three. I don't know the accurate number because nobody talks to me. I've been a little bit critical about this. So it might be two or three analysts. And even the analysts have little time to investigate the cases because they're now required to do annual meetings with families. So they'll have a meeting on the East Coast, a meeting on the West Coast, and each one they got to prepare reports that's a lot of paperwork as opposed to going in and interviewing Ho Chi Minh's uncle or cousin or Joe Biff the Ragman who may have known where Glenn Lane and Robert Owen disappeared in May 1968 from ST Idaho. I mean, obviously the team was wiped out because the bright light that went in um, was hit with American weapons and American hand grenades. And one of the Americans, the troll, George Sternberg, he's in Sogcast 001. He literally had his jungle boots blown off by an American hand grenade. And that's why we know that the team, at least the Americans, were wiped out. And we, you know, the little people, the Vietnamese on the team were very... They're outstanding fighters. So we assume they went down fighting. 
Yeah, that's that's the crazy thing that we live in a world where we can search the depths of the ocean, find a Titanic, find every remnant of that ship, but we can't allocate the same passion and resource to find our own Green Berets. That's to me is it's it's ridiculous to to sit here and say like well well it can't be done. I'm like well really, I'm pretty sure we can have light laid out. We can have every sort of resource we can find go in there and start doing more. It's just a matter of people's shifting priorities. And like you said, political figureheads that just want to do the talk game. Right. And then, you know, there are outstanding nonprofits today that are working on bringing home the remains, but I don't know of any that DPAA will even allow in Southeast Asia. These other organizations are going for World War II stuff, which is fine. I mean, God bless them. They're raising millions of dollars. The people that work those are outstanding. They're conscientious. And when they find them, they do the right identifications. And the families are finally reunited. But, you know, the World War II people, and even Korean War, at some point, they've said, this is what happened in that war. And Vietnam, that was the first time that American families petitioned the enemy to improve the conditions of incarceration and prison for the Americans that were POWs there. And then from that, when the POWs came home in February of uh, 73, the um, um, government didn't talk about the people that we didn't talk about, which means all of our men from the secret war other Americans that were there from the CIA and in Laos and Cambodia and North Vietnam. And that number was close to 2000. Now it's down to 1,584, but that number has only decreased by one or two at a time over the last few years. As DPAA talks about Vietnam's our primary mission, but it's not really. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Other than that, uh, how'd you enjoy the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm just a little bit bitter about it. No, uh, I, uh, understandable. Completely understandable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I, I, I do have to ask when being on, on a team where, you absolutely have a concrete understanding that going home is not a luxury and something because, you know, our current deployment format is, you know, exhausting, but it's not like what you guys had where it's not like, Oh, I'm, I'm, we're going to be in it for six months and then we're going to rotate back out. And then we're going to another team's going to tap in. You're there for a substantial amount of time. What did you guys do in order to maintain uh, not just your sanity, but that, that hope maintaining that hope of like, Hey, keep doing our job, keep doing the best thing, doing performing the best we can. And we're going to get out of this. Well, it was our tour of duty was only one year. And then we were up. Um, you could, you could extend. And so in my case, my first tour of duty came up as it ended, you know, Lynn black had come on a team and I was handing the team off to him and he was, and he was a better one zero than I was. So I had no worries about the team being in good hands. And then the Frenchman came over for at least our little team, RT Idaho. And uh, 
um, I had a sweet thing back at the States. So I felt obligated to get home. You know, we had corresponded for a year and uh, had it not, I would have extended it right then. But went back, was up at Fort Devens for five months with the 10th group, which is very different from the 10th group today. And uh, I hated every second up there. Went back to Vietnam, got on my team. I mean, in fact, I went down to the Pentagon and had Billy Alexander uh, write me up the uh, the orders. I went in there <laughs> like on a Thursday morning. and went in, gave her her flowers and her bottle. She had a certain wine she liked. So I had gave her both. And by four o'clock, I had my orders. I drove back to Devon's in the morning, signed out. Monday, the MPs came. There had been some activity downtown that they were, wanted to talk to me about. But uh, I was en route to Vietnam, so... Never got a chance to talk to the lads. <laughs> that's one of the, that, that's, that takes the cake. Uh, a lot of yeah. us wish we would have been able to do that at so many yeah. different times. Like that's a whole different world, but man. Uh, well, you know, one night they had a front gate. There's two ways in one way in and one way out. Well, one night we went in the out gate. I had a four, four, two W 30. Went in there with a sideways drift, and they chased me with the little Jeep, right? <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> they were trying to find me. <laughs> I just hit amongst our combo rigs. Those DMPs could never quite figure out where we went. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's good. Oh, that's a- <laughs> so now you're going back, and now it, it's definitive that hey, it's better to be active and that's what we feel it's better on deployment than coming back like you come back and it's like all right reset the clock and let's get gone again and and (laughs) seeing like and people can't appreciate or understand that till you've actually done it it's like yeah it's better for us once we're deployed and back into it that that's just the, the mindset of doing that job is it's easier to deal with the simplicity of combat then coming back stateside and dealing with stateside military issues. Oh, yeah. And again, uh, I got back. So I went back to my team. Lim was a one zero. He ran the team and Doug had just uh, de roast out. So he left. I missed my time with Doug. And uh, I got it back in the end of October. So November 3rd, RT Maryland's wiped out on uh, November the 10th. RT, gosh, I think it was asked. Well, I always, draw a blank, but two teams wiped out completely. And I've been back less than two weeks. We tried to do bright light for them, had weather conditions, couldn't get in. But, you know, the uh, the seriousness of the war and the escalation, because by that time, Johnson had stopped the bombing campaign up north. And the second that word went out, they came south with more anti-aircraft, uh, more personnel, the Russians came south, training the South Vietnamese how to use the anti-aircraft, um, artillery, everything from 37 Mike Mike to 12.7s, 23s. Oh, man, they they had it. And the helicopter pilots and our coveys, which were our code name for our facts, they really, every day was, where's the latest uh, anti-aircraft site? And it was just stacking up out there. And that added to the, not to mention what the mission was when you're on the ground, because by 69, they had battalions that were trained, NVA battalions trained solely 
to come find our teams, kill the Americans, and leave the indigenous alive for psyop purposes. And that was going on. That's it. That's the other part that a lot of people don't realize is you were most wanted. They indeed. They, that yeah. was your you're being hunted, actively being uh, sought out by the enemy, and that that's a whole different that's a whole different ball game because you guys are are deadly. You guys are precision, deadly tools. But when you have the entire an entire nation looking just for you and your teams, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a whole different fucking game. <laughs> yeah, and and then um, you know along those lines the. Um, the indigenous people had to cooperate with the communists. If they didn't, they would just kill them. Yeah. So besides the regular army guys that were there, keeping the Ho Chi Minh Trail, that's where the supplies came south. You know, they had all the people there that kept the trails moving. Then you had the battalion. And I think they had, by the end, they had over two battalions of sappers that they were trained to do nothing but overrun our teams or our hatchet force if they went in. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's You're serious about it. <laughs> yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. No, it, it's it's going into that environment, knowing you're outnumbered, outgunned, but still know that you're you're one of the most effective tools that you that our nation has in fighting this war. And and it's still you've got to make them you got to fucking accomplish the mission. That's yeah, that is fucking insane. <laughs> for lack of any other words <laughs> and it, i feel it was a it was a unique and new uh way of conducting warfare that really shaped the rest of of what special forces um looked like after that um because a, a lot of you know working with indige and stuff it's all things that we can we can relate to um because that that was your guys's job i was just there to to call and cast for you whenever, whenever you need it or provide it, uh, intelligence or something like that. Um, see, we did, we never knew what you guys were until now. This is a new <laughs> phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I carried the radio. I called in the airstrikes. Yeah. I was going to ask you, um, I know I, I never had to fight in the jungle, um, but there were some thicker areas and I know with the increase of canopy cover, comes with the increase of, of risk of fratricide. So how, how is it that you you navigated that, uh, whether it was uh, providing, you know, as many updates as possible um, or the way you employed ordinance? Well, the way we employ, the key element to employing ordinance was commo, as always. You know how it is with us, that goes, Deny. Uh, you got to get the word up. So the special element to that was our cubbies had a cubby rider. So there would be an Air Force fac, but there would be a Green Beret who had experience on the ground. So that in itself gave the team on the ground and the Air Force pilot who was coordinating with air assets for TAC Air. And uh, it cut out a lot of bullshit and, and uh, unnecessary combo. So the key thing was we either had to get linked by a mirror flashy or smoke, right. or sometimes we'd use a pin flare to, to locate us. And we'd usually have an opening somewhere where, you know, um, if we had been on the ground for two or three days and they would come out looking for you, first thing we had to do was get that airplane over us 
and we'd be on the radio bringing them in like through a flashy or if we're in a tactical situation and we're having a firefight, well, then we're popping smoke. But at least with the mirror, uh, maybe an occasional tracer or a flare, flare pin flare, um, you would do it to get their attention. So once they locked in on us, then we could direct it. You know, and again, the golden rule, you never go across your team. You go in front it right. on the north and south, east and west sides, but never across your team. We had right. a couple of guys that did that and their team paid a severe price for it. Yeah, you got to always always parallel and never perpendicular, you know, yes. you never you never want them coming towards you um, or even if coming over you. So um, but I, I mean, I can definitely relate to that. I did it for 10 years um, and it's 10 very years. 10 years and it's very very interesting um learning the history of how um guys like me came to be uh you know the guy riding in the aircraft with the fact that's just me now and i'm an air force guy that's on the ground and i you know eat with the team and i go out with the team or used to i don't do anymore um <laughs> yeah but uh yeah, yeah but 10 it, years is a pretty good run it was a good run um <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's that's incredible. Well, here's uh, something else. The, the, I think that your training for for close air support was a little bit more detailed than ours. We had in country training where you had a group, and you watch somebody calling an airstrike, and then you go to our base, and you may have one or two practice gun runs just with the helicopters. But right. this is no spads, which are the A1 Sky Raiders, slow movers. And then, of course, the fast movers. And um, but we knew what the ordinance was and we knew what the capabilities were, including CBU, because that's the right. first time we ever heard about CBU was when we we're in country on the ground. Be advised, we're going to do CBU run like WTF. Yeah. <laughs> what's, yeah. The, what's the and CBU? Hopefully <laughs> you're not employing those where you're going to walk later because there's a pretty yes. significant dead rate on those things. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of uh, yeah. Well, fortunately, the Air Force was good in warning us about that too. Right. That, that <laughs> but, just, so that's why uh, that was our training compared to what you guys had. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, now it's incredible. It's it's, it, it's it's a lot of training, a lot yeah. of education, and arguably one of the most uh intensive jobs and one that gets no doesn't get enough uh validation and props is the guy that's doing all the controlling because he's not sleeping he's not eating on mission it's constantly keeping all that air coverage up there mm -hmm. saving us and it's some asshole like me that's yelling at him over comms with i need you to destroy the building to the west yeah. of me before i'm dead yeah. <laughs> which may or may not have happened yeah right and and you've had a few okay i mean because everybody's using all the high technology yeah and we've had tragic results even in your war yes where if that computer is not linked the correct way there's horrific results that that can stem really from that and um Two, that's, two that's, numbers that's a, are switched and it's yeah. and it's a catastrophe yeah so yeah but I, I mean i have a lot of respect for for you as the guy on on the ground with you know the radio and providing those real-time updates of you know at least hey like this is where you know we're at like and then you're tracking your partner force too oh and, yeah and that that is a challenge in of itself even if you're just <laughs> doing tactical ground maneuvers so i like you 
I'm so you had too many hats on. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You didn't have your own guy to do that. Cause uh, if we well, can yeah, time travel, we'd get yeah, you we were Ryan. Lucky there. Yeah. We never had to worry about that. It was like us, everybody else was the enemy. Now, if right. we ran That's to, true. If we you ran can't miss the, really. Uh, yeah. Some of the local indigenous people, if they had their saws for cutting wood, we're not going to fire them up, you know? But uh, yeah, so everybody else was the bad guy once we were on the ground across the fence. Yeah, right. Yeah. A little different than your work. I, I can't imagine sure. trying to, you want to direct an airstrike and where's, where's Joe Biff the rag man or <laughs> right. Joe Biff the Afghan, yeah. you know? It is, it's, it's a constant, it, the more, the more that goes under your plan, you know, like it makes it a little easier on the execution, but then you have all the variables. Um, and let me tell you, <laughs> Afghan partner for us, Variable is their middle name. <laughs> they will do the craziest shit. And oh man, even just wrangling them to get them in a row to get on the helicopter under two minutes so you don't get like destroyed on Xville. Um, yeah, that is a challenge of its own. Uh, you, yeah, you mean to tell me you didn't enjoy my random RPG guy? No, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. To, to be honest, I didn't enjoy any of your people. So. <laughs> i'm like trying to oh man they would just disappear i'd be trying to count people and they were like where where is he like Chief oh, he, always he, had always had the wild indage yeah my wild. my gun teams were always a, a bit wild they ran loose wow <laughs> yeah see with our with with uh we, we officially called our vietnamese little people because they're literally littler yeah <laughs> but um they were in and out of those helicopters in a new york city second and they were quick and oh, yeah. uh, I'm alive today, thanks to their uh, to their valor and the fact that they're just incredible soldiers. Fearless. Absolutely, uh, and that's that's a part of of the the regiment that is still alive today. Uh, that ability to work and develop those bonds with the people that are, are there with you, fighting in that country, like you form a real brotherhood. And oh, yeah. from the interpreters to the guys that you have on your uh, as your commandos. And that's yeah, and the counterpart, the is the team leader. Yeah. From the indigenous side, like in my case, it was Sal. You know, it took me five or six months to earn his respect because I had to earn his respect. But it was one thing to talk to go out and do training missions and have a beer and, and uh, go downtown for local patrols and stuff. But it's another for them to go give you that nod, you know? Yep. And uh, exactly, and, and with the South, our guys, uh, they knew their government was corrupt, and they would they were but they were willing to die fighting communism as opposed to being under the thumb of communism. And uh, you know, we never, on, at least on our recon team, we never had a problem with with friendly fire or worrying about them opening up, shooting us, or doing anything like that. Yeah, man, we were in it together, and uh, it was just an. The further I get away from it, the more impressed I am with the valor of our little people. Sad to say, we've lost most now; they're not around. But uh, that's why I always try to write them up. And of course, the King Bees. Yeah, I mean, my God, I could have been dead so many times. Our whole team would have been wiped out had it were not for the King Bees. Yeah, and we, we had we other had... air assets. I mean, they're just outstanding. I mean, any of our air from the Marine Corps. Like Scarface, HML three six seven, who served during the entire secret war supporting Saad, but there's very little written about it. And there might be another book coming out 
uh, finally on that. And then you got like the 101st with um, Roger Lockshear just did a book called We Save Sog Souls. And it's, he was a crew chief with the 101st Airborne at, during most of 68. And that was our worst year in terms of casualties and uh, teams lost. And that was when the whole transition, and they moved down more to anti-aircraft stuff. Yeah, and, those, uh, those final years were were pretty damn rough. Um, as the guy on the ground going through that, did you have any, did you get any inkling or any word that like, hey, like this is not going to go like our administration, our people back home, this thing's not going to continue because they don't have the, they don't have the fortitude to just let us do our job. What was your feeling and your understanding on the ground? Well, we were always under a political yoke anyway, because of the state department. And I, I, to this day, I think there's more communists in the damn state department than there are in Hanoi. <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's just get that on the record. Okay. <laughs> That's I mean, on the record. What those assholes did with our Afghans. Yes. Trying to get our people out, people that supported us over 20 years. Yeah. Um, but that aside, um, you know, it's just uh, uh it's just hard, it's hard to really get into graphic details on it. But our people, I mean, the mission was horrible. We they limited, I mean in Cambodia, we could not have they agreed to this the State Department agreed that we would not have close air support. All they had was helicopter gunships. I mean, and here's this, another classic example of politics in Cambodia. During my briefing on Thanksgiving Day, we had a mission. And a mission was to find one of three NVA divisions that were NVA divisions. The first, the third, and the seventh were all MIA. So Thanksgiving Day, 68, we get a briefing and we were up all night studying reports, photos, and um, we get in when I leave. Oh, and during the briefing, they say, you can't use white phosphorus grenades. So I'm going, OK, we had a firefight literally running back to the LZ, putting down claymores with five second fuses because we found two of the three NVA divisions that weren't happy with us being in Cambodia with them. They literally chased us back to the LZ and we killed a whole bunch of them. And we're not for the. Uh, for the Green Hornets, the SOS, the Air Force 20th SOS Special Operations Squadron, we would have been wiped out. They saved us, the five-second claymores. We get out. As we're leaving, I, you cocksuckers, I threw down a white phosphorus grenade. <laughs> this is Thanksgiving on Thursday, 68. Two days later, we get into a uh, We get in, perfect infill. We get to a road, and it's like thick jungle. And there's the road right there, like boom, boom. So I have my camera. I'm taking pictures. Bubba, Bubba Shore, my assistant team leader, went out, put a, 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 an anti-tank mine in the middle of the road, led it back. So we were going to get a POW. And there's trucks coming down, some with troops, some with supplies, but they're NVA trucks. And we're getting ready to blow it. And across my radio comes... General Creighton Abrams orders you out of the field, back to base now. I say, yeah, we're in the middle of an operation. No, no. Cease and desist your operation. Get your ass back. So we get back there. What happened? 
uh, the CEO pulls me and goes, look, uh, Premier Sinop, the Premier of Cambodia filed a formal protest with our government over my white phosphorus grenade. Now, he wasn't upset about the 100,000 NVA that were there or those three divisions that we were trying to find. Yeah, that didn't bother him. But they pulled my ass out of the field to chew my ass out for a white phosphorus. That's how ridiculous it was. Yeah. So the CEO goes, well, what happened? So I told him what happened. He says, well, what's your cover story? Well, our cover story is that I regret that somehow that white phosphorus fell on my harness and somehow that pin, I had the pin ready to pull, accidentally it fell and I'm really sorry for you if you hurt anybody. And that he covered my ass for me. That's but that's insane. how stupid the politics were. Yeah. Now, I mean, you guys probably have tales from your time there. Yeah, when I was worser. I was in Syria and uh, Syria. You uh, weren't there. Oh, okay. Well, Joe, Joe doesn't, Joe doesn't know that I was there. Okay. But I was fucking there. I promise. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, like as the Afghan withdrawal happened, you know, there's, there's two major consequence consequences of that. Like besides the fact that it was a complete and total shit show. Um, oh, yeah. so th- the first consequence, um, was that it emboldened our enemies. So now we're being attacked more. And the unfortunate second consequence is, uh, the administration didn't have an appetite for us retaliating to those attacks because of how much bad press was in the media over the Afghan um, Afghan withdrawal and what what a like I said um, it, was a goddamn, it was a goddamn what the fuck so <laughs> yeah. um, and we did we got attacked um, rocketed uh, blatantly I mean we had every every adversary whether they're proxy or not you got the russians um across the euphrates you have uh the syrian regime then you have the russian militia then you have isis um and there's all of them are seeing are seeing weakness the populace is seeing weakness like we're getting i'm i'm you know head of like the security because i'm talking to the overhead asset Um, I'm always with the commander right next to him, watching his back. And we have crowds around us of people saying like, well, you don't give a shit about us. Like, look what you just did to Afghanistan. And all we can say is, well, you have a good point. Um, but we're not the government, you know, like we're, we're here to help you. Like we're, we're men just like you and we're here and, you know, um, we want to help any way you can. But, but when we got attacked, like I, my job is to understand the rule of engagement. My job is to protect the captain um legally and i'm not a jag but i understand that rule of engagement so much that i can advise him hey like under this hostile act or hostile intent like you have all of the authority to retaliate as you see fit uh you do not need any permission from anyone above you uh under this roe code and they're too scared to make decisions because of the political environment and um you know and i got buddies that are their convoys getting ambushed and I'm medevacking three people and I find the guys responsible and I'm ready to pull the trigger and, the, and they tell me no. And it, oh, well, they're, well, they're not, they're not actively engaged. I was like, well, motherfucker, they're ISIS. Like, yeah, we, we, <laughs> we didn't lose PID. Like we know exactly where they're at. Like this guy just did a three kilometer sprint. You think that people just fucking do that for fun? Like, <laughs> no, <laughs> you dipshit. <laughs> my um, favorite, my favorite thing was having to, call jag for guidance on being able to use certain munitions and i'm not i'm not i'm not even joking this is not hyperbole 
the guy is like, well, I, I have to look into this. I'm like, no, you don't. I'm going out the door in the last couple hours. And if you don't tell me I can't do this certain thing, I'm going to use this thing and just call it shake and bake. And it was a great time. Yeah. And I was shooting shake and bake rounds <laughs> left and right on infill and exfil and <laughs> spicy smoke, <laughs> spicy smoke. That's all you have to call it. But I remember coming back and then sitting in the, in the team room and like, Three days later, that same Jack calls me back. He's like, hey, technically, um, no, you cannot use that. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, technically, I'm not because I'm calling it something else, asshole. I am not sitting here and de debating with you how I'm going to fight this war. Like, this is absolute asinine that we've gotten ourselves into a place where we are waiting for somebody that's never going to be in combat to tell me that I can't do something to save my life. No, thank you. Spicy yeah. smoke for everybody. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But where you get where you can shortcut that, um, it's not your country, <laughs> right? And you are working with Indige. Exactly. Do whatever the fuck they want. And John, I'm sure you can relate to that. Um, where <laughs> maybe maybe you can't throw um the spicy grenade uh, and get away with yeah. it without repercussions. But man, I mean, you can hand that thing off to anyone you want. <laughs> and that is their, it's their fucking fault. Um yeah, well, see, this is a classic example of you guys having learned from our mistakes. I wasn't bright enough to think about that. Of course, on the other hand, my guys were South Vietnamese, so technically they were foreigners too. That's true. <laughs> In Cambodia. <laughs> but I mean, closer, about the closer to their home than it is to yours. So yeah. um, I would just been like, closer. Cambodia? I was looking at the wrong map. Ah, shit. <laughs> And there was another instance uh, where, you know, I was soaking a target uh, with ISR for God knows how many days. And uh, I was lucky enough to get some some good intelligence, like right before we stepped out the door uh, with a drone. And they were out 40 ADMs in the field having the fucking World Cup uh, right by a mosque. Really? And then they come and we're like, OK, it's, it's going to be it's going to be crazy. Um, and uh I watched them arm the IEDs around the mosque. And then we get to the mosque when we're on the ground and, and the partner force are like, dude, this thing's fucking booby trapped. Like it is a landslide situation. Like we're not going in there. And I'm like, great. Well, since they're using the mosque as a cache for IEDs and it's booby trapped, it loses its status as, is a protected structure. So, I mean, these, this is the rules. I didn't make them. I just read them. <laughs> right. And I'm coming up with weaponeering solutions. I'm going to use GB, uh, two GBU 39s and put those things Ooh. in there. And it's, it's all just going to go up and I'm fucking pumped about it. And then I get a phone call and sat. Uh, I didn't get the call. Someone handed me a sat phone. I think it, I think it might've been our, <laughs> I think it might've been our uh, team lead there. Um, and he's like, Oh, Jag's on the phone. And I'm like, Whoa, Whoa. Rob, Rob. And they're like, Nope. Really? The Jag. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, hello. And the first thing he says is, don't blow up the mosque. <laughs> what do you mean don't blow up the mosque? But, it's right um, there. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's clearly a lawful target. Oh. oh, man, it's just like, how do you win a war when you're treating your guys like that? Yeah. So, but I yeah, feel you. I mean, I yeah. feel like you have a, you have a three letter, four letter word there is JAG. <laughs> man, those people, I mean, yeah. they're not out to win the war. No. No. Not at all. No, but I definitely feel your frustration, and and it's super super unfortunate that they would even even risk taking you off of of a mission like that, um, just to prove some fucking point that 
doesn't actually like matter. So yeah, unfortunately, I mean, I was TDY down south. Um, the CEO down there covered for us. You know, had he not, that could have gone a little bit further. But um, we ran one more mission, and then we had a uh, situation where up north, out of our FOB, uh, King B went down with seven Green Berets on an eldest son mission. And so that knocked our manpower down. So my TDY tour duty ended abruptly and they shipped me back north to get back up to FOB one. But we had seven men and plus the King B crew that went down November 30th, 1968. And that eldest son was the doctored ammo that they would go in and insert it. Then the enemy would use it and it'd blow up in their face and kill them, or at least maim them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Either way. I think that's a war crime now, but back then, I think well, it was okay. Well, uh, <laughs> technically, kind of still around. Yes. Yeah, off the record. Yeah. I, yeah I've seen, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying we still do that. I'm not saying it's still a thing. It's, a, it's still a thing. <laughs> but it is. Now, I've talked to guys from your ear that did it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it's a great tool. I, I love that. And uh, because uh, it, it only affects the assholes it oh that's true <laughs> oh yeah one of my favorite the uh, youtubes was the uh either an isis or al-qaeda he had his 82 82 millimeter throws it down the tube yeah <laughs> that'll happen yeah, <laughs> yeah waiting for you. That, that's weird that doesn't happen to us <laughs> it's very strange that it happened to so you <laughs> <laughs> how did that how did that political um frustration did that did that um factor into your decision um to to part ways after you know a couple tours well the, at the end of my second tour it ended abruptly because me and the commanding officer who was a tanker who knew nothing about special forces he's one of create neighbors buddies and create and sent him up to our unit to get some command time and he gets some medals. So he put himself in for a lot of medals. And then um, while he's in the middle of that, I was in the middle of my second tour of duty. And we had a major disagreement. And he said, I'm going to end your career. And uh, next day, you're out of camp. And it ended after I've been running recon for 19 months. So I went, but he didn't realize that my ETS was up in two weeks. So I figured God put that asshole in my life to say, you know, your body's still intact, if not your mind, uh, just go on home, get back to college. So I uh, got out two weeks later. They did. We had that, the best party our team ever had. We had a big, gave them like five or $600. They went out and bought all the food and booze. We had a big party that night. It was April, 1970. And that was right after we had come back from a four man mission in the Ashaw Valley. And, um, uh, each guy passed out. Hep was the last man standing. He goes, my, you need anything else? I said, no, he, he laid down and passed out right there. <laughs> so I, I picked him up. I dusted him off. I carried him into the team room. And I put him in the bed and covered him up. And I stood there. It was like the most painful moment of my life to be there, leaving him behind, knowing I was going to be getting out of the army. Yeah. Let alone getting out of Vietnam. And those guys were were there. Now, 
again, we had good Americans. I wasn't worried about the follow-up. John Ingalls was on the team. He was experienced. And they had other people that came in that I learned years later. It came in. And Idaho are was one of the first teams to run all indig missions across the fence. And Ken Bore, who retired as a two-star major general, he was the last America 1-0 on that team, which I never knew about until a few years ago. <laughs> and uh, Ken had trained him up further and turned the team over, and he ran missions across the fence by themselves. Oh, so wow. we were really proud of our team. But that night, that moment, is one of the most painful moments of my life. Oh, yeah. I, I, I've, I've had my own... <laughs> my own uh moment leaving the team and i know same goes for ryan and that's people that have never served in that capacity and in in that type of environment where the brotherhood is so tight and it's a family that works and is effective walking away from that going into the unknown of civilian life is the hardest thing you can do that is that is a true testament of like, do you have the strength to succeed? Because, uh, man, if if we could stay forever young, and I know a lot oh, of yeah. us would stay on the teams. <laughs> oh, absolutely, no question about. It. And you know, here's the other thing. I mean, then you've got your August 16th. We've got April 30th. The only difference is, at least you guys had technology, people on the ground, where you could um, work to bring people back. We couldn't. I mean, in 1975, April 30, 1975, when Saigon fell, you know, we were they were screwed and we were screwed. And I was just a little pee on a local newspaper with uh, living paycheck to paycheck. What could I do? We tried over the years to bring some of our guys back. The only one that made it out was HEP, but that was additional. Like, your guys is bad with your August 16th, which we're mm. getting close to the anniversary date. And then ours was even worse for hear me tell because we just could never could get back to our little people. It just gnaws away at you. Over yeah. Time. Yeah. It, it hits. And we're alive today. I'm sure in your case, you could give examples of you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for your little people. Oh yeah. I know really? we have way too many close calls that if it wasn't for <laughs> <laughs> dedicated interpreters that like came out and fought with me, to save other Americans, I want to be there. Like you're in a firefight, you're pinned <laughs> down and you and two interpreters are the only ones that can make a difference. And you look at these guys and you're like, Holy shit. Like these are my <laughs> brothers. These yeah. are my brothers. Like they're not here uh, for a paycheck. They're not here to like write a book. They're just here to help us fight this fucking war. And that's, that's a whole different because, hey, I'm getting a paycheck. I I, I have a uniform. Uh, this dude's here it, a few weeks ago. He was over there. He grew up in this country. He's here fighting on behalf of like us wanting to give his his family a better shot at life. And then seeing all that shit unfold. Yeah. And then, you know, people, particularly our scumbag media these days, they do not give any coverage to the heinous nature of the enemy, of what oh, yeah. you're up against. I mean, there'll be some stories. Thank God there's been some really good books on Afghanistan and even Iraq now. Not many, but there are a few that are really good. That at least 
give a sense of what you all are up against. And the same thing with us. Yeah. You know, people just forget. I mean, you look around today, you see these clowns at college going, wearing a Che Rivera shirt, talking about how great socialism is. Excuse me. You know, I've been introduced to socialism when I didn't do what they wanted. They tried to kill my ass. And you call socialism and communism, they're all the same bed. They hate America. Absolutely. And uh, uh, I don't, you know, our education system has failed big time. And and the media today has not given adequate coverage to the evil you guys came up against. It's ongoing. Oh, yeah. It won't end. And now we've got a lot of people in our country that are in sheep's clothing, but they're really wolves. Absolutely. It's it's the idea that socialism is this beautiful tool to for equality. You're not looking at the history. You're not looking at what it's done to places like Vietnam, Cuba, anywhere where it's been instilled. It doesn't work. Yeah, it only leads to further suffering. And we now have people in our own government education system that are rallying for it like i'm i am not uh i am not american by birth american by choice i came from central america i (laughs) i have seen and i grew up with you know real poverty i've also seen the benefit of having an american government that allows you to have freedom of choice the ability to live in freedom. It is not the same as living in a communist country. It is far from it. Communism does not equal uh, freedom and having a great life. It brings you into despair, poverty, and the understanding that the government and the state are a horrible fucking provider. That's the fucking truth. And we need to start telling people and, and and showing people what it really means to be an American again, because we've really lost that. We've really gone off to the wayside. Yeah, maybe when that WNBA yeah. player gets done her nine-year term in prison <laughs> yeah. with Russia for smoking she weed, can come back and then and talk a little bit about that. Yeah. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, like the same people that shit on this country and what it was founded on. Will put themselves in that. Will get put in situations like that, and then sit there and be like, "Oh fuck, yeah, uh, help me, help me." I'm like, "Wait, no, 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 you're far off. Better there. This place yeah. wasn't so good." <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. human beings have yet to break the cycle of society of where you know we go through these times of great peace, and then we change things because of that peace, and then we go. And maybe it maybe it's our time. Maybe it's our our children's time. Um, but history teaches us a lot yeah. um, about ourselves, and and I think that unfortunately um, it's inevitable. So, hey, it's oh, it's the truth. Yeah. And look at I me. Mean, look at the erosion of so many institutions. I mean, the family in America and has been under attack, and white men have been under attack for fifty years now part of the undermining of our country and religion, religious freedoms, my God. Mm. And uh, I think that's, if there's a positive to come out of all this COVID China virus stuff, it's that a lot of this has surfaced, the CRT stuff, 
that we yeah. may not have known about it would have gotten deeper. But at least now it's come out publicly. And you look at this administration, what a complete disgrace. There aren't people in there that have practical experience in industry or anywhere else. They're all political appointees that have one agenda. Yeah. And none of those agendas improve or help America. Absolutely none. But it's important for us to point out that uh, our vice president is a woman who wears a blue dress <laughs> and, yeah, and goes by whatever. Yeah. Um, and she has a difficult time stringing together two sentences. Yeah. Or making any resemblance of a point. Yeah. But hey, progress, but, uh, right? <laughs> but there is hope. There is hope. It's unprecedented uh, the amount of green berets that we have running for office, the, the yes. amount of leaders within our regiment that have said, you know what? We've been gone for 20 years. It's time for us to uh, transition into a, the civilian world and help put our nation back together and at least uh, show them that there's no such thing as toxic masculinity. We need fathers. We need men. We need real people doing real hard work in government. Um, Hell, even China knows that. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, oh, yeah. Ban they're banning people from playing more than an hour of video games a day or, or being into like hentai shit uh, because <laughs> because they understand that like the lack of masculine men is going to be the downfall of their yeah. society. So, I mean, they're doing it with an iron fist, but um, which will backfire. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't think they're completely wrong there. I think what, what needs to happen is at uh, at every school, when a boy is 12 years old, uh, they need to hand them uh, on the ground, the secret war in Vietnam, hand it to them and be like, go outside and read this and go in the woods and you pretend that you're John Meyer and you pretend you're out there going after the enemy and don't come back. I, that's what a lot of us did when we were kids. <laughs> that's, I feel like that's, you just uh, talked about my childhood. I, I would run out in the woods with sticks and, and pretend that I'm a commando. Yeah, same here. Look, right? look what they did. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, man. John, thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Um, sure. is all mine. We are, we are huge fans. Um, we are honored to have had you on and we will continue to not only talk about our our history and our lineage, but uh, we're going to reach back out and try to get you on and have some more of your uh, your brothers come on and talk about your experiences because that's that's how we teach the next generation of Green Berets about our history. We have to be able to put it out there in a true, honest, authentic format, not in the great veneer of comic books or TVs because that that doesn't even hold a candle to talking to the real legends. So thank yeah, you for joining us. Yeah, because the other day, I think it was either the New York Slimes or the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> they had a thing about American heroes, and, they, and, they, and there was all the Marvel heroes. And I'm going like, you know, what's wrong with this picture? Yeah, yeah. And uh, to get some kind of a true understanding of what each of our generations have been through and talk about history from the real side of it, as opposed to... Uh, today's social agenda that's just being forced down kids' throats in schools, which is really wrong. That's where there's a lot of mothers out there that are pissed off and they're rising up and speaking yeah. to um, hopefully change some of these things. We even have it in Tennessee. Yeah. And I moved to Tennessee. Uh, my wife and I moved in a year ago. 
we love it here, feel like we moved back to America. But even here, there's efforts in schools to get in extra curriculum with social stuff. And they ignore the history. They ignore social studies, civics that we all had yeah. to learn about our country. Yeah, that's not perfect. I'll tell you right. what, you go to any common, you go to Cuba, go hang out for a couple of weeks. When yeah. you can't get your hamburger or whatever you want, you're going to come back. You'll kiss the ground when you get back to America. I know I did. Yeah, absolutely. Now, real heroes don't wear uh, bright colored capes and their underwear <laughs> on their outside of their pants. Real heroes wear B tiger stripe BDUs and carry Ray car Bans. 15s. <laughs> yeah, fucking, go deep in the don't, fucking jungle house in Cambodia. And, and fucking, don't forget Thumper. We always carried Thumper. Yeah, Thumper. <laughs> I also like to carry Thumper. Yeah. Uh, I affectionately called mine the Yeet Cannon for uh, the yeah. new generation. That's what I called it too. <laughs> Did you cut yours down too? <laughs> no, mine was already pretty short. Yeah. Our, ours was really short and man, I just carried it standalone and it was yeah. by like far a hand the handgun. Yeah, like it's just, literally. Oh, I no no butt stock, no, no butt stock, no hand grip. Just I would use it for marking. So you just <laughs> throw some smoke out there somewhere and be like, "All right, from yeah. the smoke." That's, uh, there that's you go. What, that's right. When, yeah. when I effectually came up with the uh, the spicy smoke, just <laughs> whiskey. What are you doing? I'm sending more spicy smoke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, really important to check the winds before you did something like that. Yes. You always <laughs> want to be you want to be upwind from it. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. Uh I greatly appreciate it, sir. Well, thank this you. has been phenomenal. On a very serious note, as we close, yes. We did our thing, but you guys, both of you, stood on our shoulders and took it to the next level. So I thank you guys. Thank you so much. That's that means the absolutely. world to us. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean it. You guys did it. You went where they sent you. Oh, God yeah. bless you. Thank you, John. Till next time. Yes, sir. 